This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to the Perfidious Albion on Speed edition of Romaniacs. I'm Ros Taylor, it's 2pm on Wednesday the 10th of April and as we're recording, the EU was preparing to replace Theresa May's proposed short extension with one that runs to the end of December, or maybe even March 2020. Who knows? This raises the appalling prospect of animatronic pork pie Marc Francois reading yet more tennis <laughs> poems to innocent EU officials for the foreseeable future. By the time you hear this, it'll probably be done and dusted and you can start printing up your Vote Romaniac posters for the EU elections. Anyway, two of our regulars are here. Journalist, commentator and disinformation expert Nina Schick is our woman in Brussels sometimes and our inside track to German politics especially. Hi, Nina. Hi. You were on our panel at Podcast Live this weekend. It was fun, wasn't it? It was fun, yeah. We we, we discussed, you know, what the EU might say and uh, true to form, they're saying exactly what we expect them to say. You <laughs> predicted very accurately <laughs> what Michelle Barnier said. <laughs> You answered one audience question about no deal by pointing out that no deal doesn't end negotiations, it just means they restart after we've left with Britain in an even worse position. And the next day, Michel Barnier said the exact same thing. Absolutely. Don't expect any Brexiteers to be picking up on that yet, though. And if it does ever happen, then they'll be like, oh my God, this is outrageous, who saw this coming? (laughs) And it will have been you. That was a great Brexiteer voice. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> also with us is Ian Dunt, editor of politics.co.uk and a man who's now spent so long in the Commons press gallery that he's now on first name terms with the ghost of Lord Liverpool. <laughs> Hello, Ian. How are you? Hello. Pretty good, actually. Pretty good. Did you get rained on when Yuri Geller burst the pipes in the Commons the other day? No, because I was at the level that the pipes were burst from. It wasn't anything to do with me. So, you know, it was it was sort of okay for us lot. I mean, that place is fucking falling apart, like, and badly. I mean, really, but like to the point where eventually something is going to happen unless something is done about this stuff. You have people, you know, sort of have to walk around switching off machinery at night because they're worried about it starting fires. You have like, it's been a long time since I've been hanging out there and I haven't seen a mouse. And the the toilet, like the toilet situation above the House of Commons, is not good. It's like a fucking political metaphor waiting to happen. And <laughs> I, I honest, like, honestly, they need to take charge and sort that thing out. And if we get caught up in this indecision about what we're going to do with the building to the point that we actually lose our most famous building, <laughs> it'll be very on point for Brexit Britain. Basically, it'll work out. There's a good case, isn't there, for moving it up north to uh, somewhere like Manchester or Liverpool or No, Leeds. because it would be harder for me to do my job and still live in London. That sounds like a disastrous idea, <laughs> and I don't understand why anyone would countenance it on that reason alone. <laughs> OK. <laughs> how, t- how tired are they all? Is the, is the atmosphere beginning to change now? Yeah, but, you know, this week there's been less to do. I mean, there was the Cooper bill that sort of shoved its way through but had basically become kind of pointless by the time that it got back to the Commons and arguably even when it was in the Lords. You notice today MPs do understand that the centre of political gravity today is not in Westminster, it is in Europe. 
So they're taking that chance to to have a bit of a break, and political journalists are, insofar as they can, doing the same sort of thing. So it feels this week feels a lot more relaxed than the last two months, which have frankly been fucking horrific. Yeah. Our special guest today is Jamie Suskind, barrister, former fellow at the Berkman Klein Centre for Internet and Society, and the author of Future Politics, which looks at how technology and data are going to change every aspect of life so much that we'll wonder why we ever worried about Brexit. <laughs> Hello, Jamie. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks for having me. Are you enjoying Brexit so far? Is it the last... oh, it's been a blast, yeah, the whole thing. <laughs> One barrel of laughs after another. The last big democratic convulsion before the AIs move in and uh, fix everything for us. There are times where I yearn for the AI overlords to come sooner. <laughs> but the Cambridge Analytica vote leave scandals are still somehow seen as a sideshow to the Brexit story. Um, have we underestimated how much technology determined not just the referendum result, but the events afterwards? Well, look, technology obviously works both ways. I think we have to acknowledge that. Both campaigns used digital technology for their own ends, and it's quite hard uh, in many respects to determine uh, which were decisive and which weren't. I I suspect there's a lot more unpicking to do before we can definitively say, and I know that sounds like I'm um, fudging, but the truth is that uh, it doesn't help anyone, I think, for the issues around the influence of technology on democracy, for it to be always politicised one way or the other. We have to see it as a collective effort to get to the bottom of the way that discourse mm-hmm. is changing. Mm-hmm. I think you're right about that. Jamie's going to be with us throughout the show. This week, we'll be trying to make sense of what looks like panicked stasis as the government tries to salvage something from its Brexit strategy. As we slide into a lengthy delay, are we going to end up with a hardline Brexiteer as PM? Or maybe, just maybe, no Brexit at all? What will the European Parliament elections do to us and our democracy? And is research released by the Hansard Society right in saying that a majority of Britons now want to be led by a strong man who breaks the rules? Do we have to get ready for a post-Brexit fight against authoritarianism in the UK? All that after a quick message from Nina. If you're enjoying Romaniacs at this exciting moment of national self-harm, don't forget <laughs> to support the show on Patreon. You'll It'd get be our... dreadful if it was like a boring moment of national self-harm. <laughs> no, 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 it's an exciting <laughs> moment of self-harm where we might literally be in a shit show. Um, literally. So... You'll get our coveted range of merchandise, including mugs and T-shirts, a monthly bonus Ask Romaniacs episode, and early bird discounts to our live shows, too. Keep listening, because we've got announcements about new shows coming very soon. Under normal circumstances, we also send every edition of the podcast to Patreon people first, but events have been moving so quickly lately that we've had to release most shows to everyone as soon as they're ready. Normal service will be resumed as soon as possible, we hope. Search Patreon Romaniacs to find out more. It's an awful lot cheaper than paying £50 to march with Nigel Farage. (laughs) And you won't get soaked in the rain either. As what passes for control of Brexit slips out of Theresa May's hands, we're currently watching as she begs the EU for a short extension. They won't give her that, although there were rumours that Emmanuel Macron wanted to be rid of us sooner rather than later. So we're looking at another nine months or a year in the EU. Phew. (laughs) (laughs) Donald Donald Tusk says neither side should feel humiliated he wants us to be treated with respect we don't deserve it Donald and we don't deserve you there was a sweet little exchange over the weekend uh, when a friend of the show David Allen Green called for Tusk to get an order of merit and Tusk posted the tweet on his Instagram account saying you made my day and he put a little red heart next to it as well it was so sweet I love Tusk anyway let's not go to that right now (laughs) 
<laughs> Firstly, Ian, we talked about this at Podcast Live, but what do you think a long delay does to the impetus for Brexit? Yeah, I think that's interesting. So I, I suspect that it is just going to let the air out of this thing in a quite significant way. I think you can you can almost feel it happening now. Like, ostensibly, in a couple of days, we hit the cliff edge. But it feels completely different to the way that it felt when we were leading up to M- March 29th. And even on March 29th, when Theresa May had that, when we knew the extension was there, but Theresa May had that last go, it felt tense because it had this almost sort of biblical sort of impact on us. I mean, there was basically a whole cottage industry of products of decorative plates and mugs and coins that, you know, had this date imprinted. And once you broke that that barrier, things, it, you know, you had proof of concept that you can go past that point. And then suddenly things started to deflate a little bit. And I think you're feeling it this week. Last week, there, there were some reports, that, you know, the EU, or, or rather Macron might, you know, veto and say we're going to have um, no deal. Now, I don't think that was ever possible on the basis that the EU was never going to be seen to be throwing out one of its member states against their will. It goes against the whole entire principle of the thing. And they're certainly never going to sacrifice Ireland. should be catastrophically affected by the impacts of no deal. So I don't think that was tenable. But this week, isn't it interesting how you don't hear that anywhere at all? Suddenly things feel much more relaxed. And I think that the longer this goes on for, the more relaxed it gets, the more it helps remain. There is less of a... I mean, if you even try to imagine a Labour MP being presented with May's deal right now, that push for accept this or it's no deal has kind of disappeared. So actually your ability to incentivize people to come on board with a compromise solution that they don't really like is, is gradually reduced. So overall, f- feeling pretty fucking chipper, actually. <laughs> but with a caveat on this, that I could be obviously be made out to be a complete moron right now because it's, it's perfectly possible they'll come out tonight and go, you know, 30th of June, whatever. I'm not expecting that. I'm no. expecting end of the year or April uh, next year. But there is the chance, isn't there, that what this delay means is the opportunity for the Tories to replace Theresa May with a Brexit hardliner. And that's what yeah. I fear a bit. What, what are the chances of that, do you think, Nina? So I, I actually agree with Ian that, you know, kind of we've had this moment of deflation this week. And that, I agree, long term, if we're looking at a long extension, um, increases the chances of either revoke or remain. However, I also strongly feel that it might go all the way the other way again. The tensions, you know, slowed down right now, but it will probably pick up again as the new cliff edge approaches, which will in, in, inevitably be in, you know, at the end of nine months or 12 months. And the reason is because I think Theresa May will go. Uh, I think we will have a Tory leadership race. And I think she will almost certainly be replaced by a hard Brexiteer. This person, I predict it now, is going to try and renegotiate the withdrawal agreement, so the terms of the UK's leaving. So this person is going to waste a whole lot of time over the next few months so that when it comes to making the choice the second time around and at the end of nine or 12 months, essentially the fundamental choices haven't changed, the debate might be so polarised that you're essentially looking at, again, no deal Brexit, or revoke or remain. And I think as the kind of um, paralysis continues, the chances of not only remain or a second referendum, but in fact revoke become higher. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the funny thing is, you've gotten rid of the no because we always used to talk in terms of the extremes, right? You would have, you know, revoke versus no deal, and then the May's deal, and soft Brexit as the others. Um, in fact, I think I was even saying that kind of stuff like two weeks ago. Now, no deal feels pretty fucking off the it feels as off the table as it's ever going to get. So the worst possible outcome has pretty much evaporated from underneath us, and that is something to celebrate and to notice and to to genuinely celebrate. Then there's Theresa May herself, and you sort of think. 
I mean, I think she's going to try and cling on. Her offer was, you know, if I get the deal, then I'll go. I didn't believe for a second that she was intending on abiding by even that offer. I definitely don't think she's going to abide on this. So then what's the mechanism? They can't, in, according to the internal Tory rules, get rid of her for some time in that manner. We've already had the men in grey suits go in and talk to her, you know, alongside the Thatcher thing. She was just like, well, no, because, you know, that's <laughs> Theresa May, right? She's just not going to do it. Brexit means Brexit. Brexit means Brexit. <laughs> so then the only other way you get is you get to, you know, a parliamentary vote of no confidence in the government. And you think, well, how many ERGs would do that? Now, there's little mutterings. There's two, at the moment, just two ERGs, but I think there'd probably be more who haven't said it, who might be willing to do it. But of course, the Tories don't get to stay in government if they do that. First of all, you get a period where Jeremy Corbyn gets a chance to try and form a government. Probably won't work out too well, but he gets a shot. He gets a couple of weeks. And then there's basically a general election. So in all of those scenarios, they, they all feel like they work out in a way that should be quite positive, I think. And will the European Parliament elections, um, assuming they're going to happen, give us a clearer picture of what the voters want, do you think? <laughs> <laughs> or or will, it, will it just give us a completely confused picture? <laughs> I, so I wonder. So I, I think the person to answer this question is definitely Naomi. So it, she, she would be the best, I think, in terms of campaigns and, and all of that. And I'm not on, on top of that at the moment. I intend to get on top of it now, to be honest. We, there's no way that we're going to have one new party that's just the Remain party. And it seems that we are going to have one new party, which is just the Brexit party from Nigel Farage. Although he obviously can't guarantee that vote will still be split with the old UKIP guys who've now basically basically become a fascist party. They've become a far right party, um, essentially under the sort of de facto leadership of Tommy Robinson rather than anything else. Um, and then you have the Tories who are still going to, in whatever bizarre manner, try to reluctantly campaign for an election, but still they're going to have to campaign in some capacity. So there is a split there, even though Farage will at least have the branding of Brexit. The question then is, what do you do with Remainers? Now, I feel like a tremendous demand for Remainers to state their fucking case. They're going to want to do that. But the question is, where does it go? Does it go to the Greens? Does it go to the independent group? Does it go to some Labour MPs? You take, you know, we've mentioned before, Seb Dance, who once came on the show, you, you'd be a nutter if you're a Remainer to think that that is not where your vote should be going towards yeah. that guy, because, you know, he has shown proper commitment to this thing. Or to the Lib Dems, and on and on you go, so it'll be splintered. But remember, it's proportional representation. So as long as you have a coordination and a sort of online level to tell people these are what people's positions were, this is how to go. There's no reason that that shouldn't still have some impact, even though it won't have the obvious Remain branding in order to give it the full weight. And there's quite a there have been a few threats this week from Marc Francois and others <laughs> to again. Jacob Rees-Mogg yeah, again yeah, yeah. to uh, to basically mess up the European Parliament as far as they can if we hold the elections. Is there any real reason to fear their threats of perfidious album on speed? Or it just feels more like perfidious album on Albion on Centrum Silver. But is it is it, <laughs> is it do should we really fear this or are we going to be such a minnow that's no no one is going to take any notice of us? I mean, they, they've, UKIP and the likes of Farage have been doing this for years anyway. And uh, having, you know, potentially Brexity disruptive MEPs in the European Parliament is something that the Europeans have fully calculated um, into their consideration. It's not going to stop the workings of the European Parliament, you know, as much as Marc Francois might think that that, that that will bring the EU to come to a grinding halt. It won't. And the other thing to mention is that, as Ian already correctly pointed out, although the Remain vote might be split. I think it's not, um, you know, you might see a much higher turnout in these elections because this country now has like one of the most vociferous pro-EU movements mm -hmm. that has been seen across the continent. So I'd be really surprised if you don't see 
a surge in turnout for kind of a pro-EU sentiment and not only this kind of Francois argument that you know, they're going to destroy the EU from within, which is also their argument, uh, you know, when they said they had no power. So which way is it? Either you control the EU or you don't, but, you know, <laughs> this logic. Is, this is their, I mean, this is their complacent bullshit right there, yeah. right? Because they think European elections are the time that UKIP gets to do well, right? It's not a constituency. They never did very well in general elections. This is our time. This is how we do well. And lots of people in UKIP for a long time have been kind of salivating really over the prospect of, of, of um, competing in this thing. What they have not realised is that internationalist liberals in this country now have a sense of identity, mm-hmm. which they frankly did not have before when they were all dispersed and their issues were not being challenged. They are, they are big in number, as we've seen, for instance, via the online petition or as we've seen via the marches. They are highly motivated and they think of themselves politically in these specific terms rather than in economic terms, you know, with, with a sort of prism through something else. So I don't think the results are going to go the way that Marc Francois and all of those mm-hmm. imagine that it will. And even if it did go that way, they still would be unable to really clog up the way that the EU functions. Yeah. They're basically just staff, spaffing out their normal bullshit. Spaffing out. We, we know who came up with that phrase, don't we? I know it just comes up everywhere. No, no. <laughs> I would like to put on record that Iron's Ever Lover has been using the word spaff with great delight since well before Boris Johnson misused <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Um, The Labour-Tory negotiations, they all feel a bit irrelevant now, but how did it play out? Was it just for the optics in the end? I think so. I I think there's also this attempt to um, offer a fig leaf to, to Europe, really, because, of course, this is the thing. Europe has already said, well, sorry, it hasn't said it, but we, we can clearly tell it's true, that it, it just isn't going to eject a member state against this world. It's not going to do it. So they have now, for quite some time, said, we need signs of progress if we're going to grant an extension. Now, Theresa May has to offer them some kind of fig leaf for that. Now, I don't think that there's any meaning, really, to those talks with Labour. I don't think she's willing to kind of offer the things that would do it. And if she did offer them, I don't think that Labour would take it because they fear contamination by it. But nevertheless, she just needs a narrative, a story that she can tell the EU and that the EU can take as its own fig leaf, as its own justification, for saying, well, look, we're going to do it because we think they've got this thing going on over here. So it is basically, at this point, a pretty hollow little myth, but one that I think Downing Street and the EU have got a mutual interest in pretending it exists. And in her fireside chat that she did a little video, May said the Tories and Labour agree on ending free movement. Um, And and that's contentious. Uh, The hardest line Labour voice against freedom of movement is uh, mysterious Labour spokesman X. (laughs) That could be. um, We're not going to mention his name here. What does does abandoning freedom of movement mean for Labour? And Jamie, I know you've got quite strong views about Labour and uh, the Labour Party generally. Is is it a a subject that you feel strongly about? Well, look, I I was a I was a Labour member and activist for ten years and left last year because, although the party is a broad church, it shouldn't be so broad that it allows racism and anti-Semitism to foster in its ranks, mm-hmm. and that's obviously the surest sign that the party has lost its way. Um, mysterious spokesman X's opposition to uh, <laughs> free movement—it's actually unclear to me whether it's based on electoral considerations or whether it actually marks a kind of old school move to the left of socialism in one country where the Labour actually believes what were traditionally the right wing tropes about immigrants being a drain on the public services or taking jobs or undercutting British workers. Um, And I think most of those have been shown to be false assumptions when you look closely at the figures. So, I mean, I look at that and I think about the tradition that Labour has of supporting 
um, not just asylum seekers, but immigrants who want to come to Britain and become British and contribute to society. I'm, a, I'm from immigrant stock myself. And I see that as a sign of Labour's moral decline. It's one of the two major parties and it's not prepared to stand up for freedom of movement uh, from our European neighbours and partners. And any suggestion that it's so that we can have some kind of fairer immigration from elsewhere in the world, as, as some <laughs> shadow cabinet members have suggested, is just nonsense. The idea that we'd somehow prioritise Commonwealth immigration or immigration from certain other countries, even if there was a moral or economic basis for that, is just never going to happen. So uh, to, to, get, to give a, a, a short answer... It's just disappointing. It just shows how far Labour has come. And I think, you know, if you'd asked me 10 years ago or even five years ago, would Labour ever be in this place where it's championing an end to freedom of movement alongside a, a, a quite a, someone who was quite a right-wing Home Secretary and is now quite an anti-foreigner Prime Minister, I, I would have hoped it wouldn't be possible. Mm-hmm. It's uh, basically as soon as people start talking about the privileging uh, immigration from other parts of the world, they then start talking about the Commonwealth. And then they start talking about Kanzuk, Canada, New Zealand and, and mm. South Africa. Yeah. And it's remarkable how quickly those nations get privileged over the others in yes, the in amazing. the discourse. It's almost uh, like we live in a deeply racist society. Yeah, yeah. it is. Um, but re- about Labour and a people's vote, um, Rebecca Long-Bailey was asserting that there'd be no need for a confirmatory vote because it's no longer a Tory Brexit. <laughs> well, we'll see about that. But, anyway. but then Emily Thornberry, of all people, bushwhacked Corbyn with a demand for exactly that so how do we know a do we have any idea still what's going on with labor and a people's vote uh the end at all i'm just going to repeat the same thing that i say every single time which is <laughs> labor is not a unified political organization there's a series of warring fiefdoms um and at the moment they are sliding and slapping around on each other really really hard and you're seeing that fight take place now on people's vote really hard so you're seeing it I mean, thought, I thought Thornberry's intervention was kind of remarkable, to be honest, because I'd never been able to ascertain what she thought about anything, mm. nor if she had really developed any of the mental faculties to be able to properly appraise it. But apparently she has and has an opinion, even if it is just her, you know, jostling in terms of where she wants to be positioned inside the party. Now, they're doing the pretty... I mean, Starmer is still firm. McDonnell is still firm. Tom Watson is still firm. So these are big, heavy hitters in the Labour Party. And that seems to be where the weight of political gravity is right now. That seems to be where the push is. But there is obviously this rearguard defence, partly from Corbyn, um, obviously partly from the spokesman he who shall not be named, um, and and various others. So we're not quite there yet. But I... I, okay, I would put it this way. I think if we see a general election, I'm now feeling pretty confident that Labour would have to put something on a second referendum in the manifesto. So that would get you to the first stage of where you would need to be. Um, I don't think that we're going to see it coming out of those talks, but I don't think it necessarily matters. The bit that concerns me at the moment is is these ideas from Downing Street of um, taking it and putting it in a free vote in front of the Commons, because at the moment that cannot win. That will lose at the moment. And that's exactly why they want to do it. They think it can neutralise Labour's opposition. They think Jeremy Corbyn might well be sort of complicit in that because he can say, well, look, I've done my bit, and they know it would lose. That, to me, seems a more... Um, a more concerning counter-tactic than the ones of what's going on in Labour. And Labour seems to be moving in the right direction overall. We have a convert this week. Uh, the former Leave diehard Peter O'Born uh, notably came over to revoke, um, saying that tired and irritable is no way to make a major decision and the political establishment are tired and irritable. Is that significant, <laughs> Nina? Is he the Walter Cronkite figure whose shift would bring lots of other doubters over? 
look, I think it's significant. His piece, if you read it, is very well thought out. Um, he actually has a grasp grasp of the facts. He understands these negotiations, and I un- and from. What he said before and from his piece, it's obvious that, you know, his reasons for voting for Brexit weren't uh, because he believed in some fantasy ideal of what that would look like once we were outside. However, I do not think that his conversion is going to be persuasive to die-hard Brexiteers, because this is no longer uh, an issue. This is no longer an issue where you're weighing up reasons and facts and using your analysis to change your judgment. This is sh- purely an emotive one, and um, this is why my fear is that if we have a more Brexity PM succeeding Theresa May, and I do think she might go. Um, that we descend even more into the realm of fantasy politics, propaganda and emotive reasoning to find others to blame when Brexit inevitably doesn't happen in the way that it was promised. So I think it's a significant intervention, but I don't think his conversion is really where the tide swell is going when it comes to Brexiteers. I, I think that many Brexiteers are hardening in their views. I mean, you only need to look at the cabinet ministers who have been briefed by, you know, national security advisors saying that no deal Brexit isn't such a big deal. And I think that gives you a better kind of indicator of where hard, hardcore Brexiteers are on this issue. It's surely true. There is, but there does seem to be some kind of, um, some kind of movement this week yeah. with the comment, with the commentary, especially, yeah. actually. So we had him, we had, um, Oh, the fuck is his name? The LBC Ferrari. Nick Ferrari. Nick Ferrari uh, this morning come out. These are quite interesting figures. If you look at sort of Obon, the sort of intellectual, sort of more uh, the more intellectual end of the sort of comment spectrum. Ferrari obviously with a morning um, sort of radio show. Ferrari's argument was quite different. It wasn't really an argument. It was basically just I'm knackered and fuck yeah. this shit. I can't be bothered with it anymore. It's just not going on. Which um, might be a better way to save face, right? I also think it's more yeah. convincing for exactly yeah. the reasons you outlined. Most people are not sat there just coming up with pros and cons and an intellectual exercise. They're thinking primarily emotionally. And that emotional argument of like, well, this is just fucking hell, lads. That's enough now. Let's yeah. just if this is if this just takes to make it stop, then fine, I'll back remain. That actually seems to me to be more effective. But those two, in a matter of days, made me think, oh, there's a little, there's something, there's po- just possible there's something sort of shifting here. Thought the same with Hugh Merriman um, coming out, which I thought was probably the most important moment of the week, coming out for a people's vote at the People's Vote Rally yesterday, was... That is people's vote crossing the species barrier. That is someone who wants a referendum but plans to back the Brexit deal. Now, we haven't really had that yet. We've always had only Remainers want the referendum because they basically want to get rid of Brexit, which is obviously exactly true. It's completely legitimate criticism. Now, suddenly, that is no longer quite the case. So these are just little chinks and nothing you couldn't get too excited, but, but they are chinks. Yeah. Moving on to the exciting prospect of our very own Orban Erdogan, Trump-style hardman leader. The Hansard Society reported this week that British voters are increasingly sick of MPs and 54% of those they surveyed are willing to accept a strong man who breaks the rules. 42% of respondents thought the national issues could be dealt with better if the government didn't have to worry so much about votes in Parliament. Faith in politics is at its lowest in 16 years. It's always been an article of faith in Britain that we don't do totalitarianism, although there have been increasing signs in other Western democracies that people are leaning, more people are leaning towards that view. Is that misplaced, Nina, do you think? I think that faith is certainly misplaced. Um, I know that's, you know, a big part of the national narrative. We were never conquered. We never became like a fascist country during the Second World War. But it's also 
something, a trend which is larger than Britain. It's kind of a trend that you see in democratic societies all across the world. Um, and I think Jamie would have some really interesting ideas on like, you know, how democracy and technology are colliding at this particular instance. But just to bring it back to Brexit, the biggest casualty of Brexit was inevitably going to be democracy and politics itself. Because if you have such an emotive referendum and you promise something that is undeliverable, the casualty is going to be democracy. Because no matter what happens now, each side is going to be pissed off. You know, whether you're a Remainer or a Lever. And who suffers the most is uh, politics in this country and faith, faith in democracy. So it's basically that direct democracy, that referendums and parliamentary democracy are incompatible, at least in Brexit terms. Yeah, and I also think that we're at a moment, a geopolitical moment, where politics is shifting in a seismic way. So the kind of old rules no longer apply. And that has a lot to do with the way in which we access information, the amount of information we can access, the way in which kind of we can exist more easily in our cognitive dissonance chamber. So this is no longer about compromise. And then if you put that against a backdrop where kind of the West, if you will, is declining as a geopolitical force and the transatlantic relationship is increasingly strained. And this idea that capitalism and liberal democracy go hand in hand and this is the political system which everybody in the world is aspiring to is no longer the truth. I think there's a certain larger status anxiety about the West, quote unquote, and liberal democracy. So I think these are all huge macro reasons which are the perfect kind of breeding grounds for things like Brexit and Trump and so on to happen. Jamie, the technological disruption you write about creates instability. And how, how does that feed into a yearning for authoritarian politics? In this country, the political science textbooks tell us that we have a majoritarian system which uh, is likelier than other systems to guarantee strong government. So parties which get less than 50% of the overall vote frequently will have a massive majority in Parliament. And so often years go by in which the only real question is who won the last general election. And having done so, parties are able to pass laws without much of a problem. In the last 10 years, we've seen a coalition government and hung parliaments. And I think it's actually reasonably new to the British psyche. And people are coming to terms with the fact that uh, politicians are having to make grubby deals and work together. And because of the adversarial system we're so used to and the structure of the two parties, we're not temperamentally in Parliament, in the press or in the public used to the kind of consensual politics that they do in other countries where they have to form coalitions the whole time. That's observation number one. Observation number two about that particular poll, I don't love the, the question, someone who breaks the rules. I think if you change that to someone who breaks the law, I think, mm. I think the response mm -hmm. would have been different. Mm. We all like a cheeky person who breaks the rules from time to time, but it depends what you mean by breaks the rules. Mm -hmm. and, I, and so for that reason, I'm sceptical about it. I do think that people, however, want to, and in some respects have a right to strong government. Most people don't check into politics every day like we do. They want to elect someone they trust to make decisions on their behalf and to know that those decisions will be enforced and maintained. And there's no doubt that our political system isn't currently delivering that. What's happening just now is obviously a result of two quite unique factors. One is the fact that it's a hung parliament, and the second is the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act. In any other period of history, this government would have disappeared a long time ago to be replaced, hopefully, by something else which can command a majority. Um, but on the, on the subject of technology, there's, there's no doubt that tech is doing two things, at least. Uh, it's fragmenting and polarising us. So people are more exposed these days to others and information 
which share their which share their views. Uh, sometimes that's by choice, and sometimes it's because algorithms choose it for them. Uh, we know that when people spend more time among information that they agree with, that they become more entrenched in those views. And in particular, the internet and social media encourage a particular kind of emotional engagement with politics. Which is, there's nothing wrong with it, but it's from a populist perspective, it is easier to win arguments using that kind of shock imagery, shock memes, shock videos than it might be in the traditional formats of debates in Parliament. Um, I'm optimistic about this country. I don't think this is a country fundamentally yearning for authoritarianism. I think that, uh, by and large, we're a reasonably sensible country, and I think that uh, the what we haven't yet developed is the is the constitutional conventions to deal with a situation where we have a referendum. We just did it without thinking about really in advance about questions like what is the legal status of this referendum? What's the legal status of calling a further referendum? Is it legitimate to call one without having had a general election on that question? Uh, what do you do when a referendum result happens, but it didn't specify the specific outcome that should be desired? This is, to my mind, a basic failure of state uh, craft, which, mm. if we'd thought about it more carefully five or six years ago, um, could have been avoided. And the kinds of leaders that um, this this um, poll that the Hansard Society did was talking about, these traditionally emerge after a military coup, but I, I can't see the army getting involved here in Britain, not least because they're always complaining about how many cuts they have, but and <laughs> nonetheless, there are plenty of strong men, you know, David Davis, for example, who play Jesus on their military God. credentials, <laughs> Mark Francois, oh, sorry, I mentioned him again, would, <laughs> would any of our bogeymen, sort of Boris Johnson, Rees-Mogg, Farage, or for some listeners, I suppose, even Jeremy Corbyn, fill the bill of the strong man who breaks, who breaks the rules, do you think, Nina, or...? I don't see any figure like that in British politics, to be honest with you. And I think that the the emergence of people like Mark Francois, um, Jacob Rees-Mogg. OK, I'm not going to put Jacob Rees-Mogg in the strongman category, but um, I, or Francois, actually. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, well, I just I just don't see any one figure being able to take control like that because the debate has become so polarized, you'll see such a vociferous kind of opposition um, that even though my prognosis, which is that a hard Brexiteer will probably take over after Theresa May, that will not be without you know a lot of challenge. So this person would never be in a kind of Orban-like position or a Putin-like position where he's, um, you know, politics become, becomes a cult of personality about this person. I just don't foresee that. And to a certain extent, Theresa May is the, is the person who has cl most closely resembled a strong man. She, the, mm -hmm. the convention in, yes. in the past has been that if you lose a vote in the House of Commons, your, your legitimacy is seriously called into question, uh, and usually they have resigned. And, and every time we think Theresa May might do the right thing, she just stands up and carries on. Uh, and, you know, there was that cack-handed attempt a couple of weeks ago to appeal directly to the people over the heads of Parliament. Mm. She's the one, in many respects, who was trying to be like a strong man. I mean, I would dissent slightly from Nina in the sense that I think that what Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn have in common is not necessarily that they're strong men, but they are mavericks. People do see them as people who don't necessarily play by the rules. And I can superficially and indeed more than superficially see the attraction in that um, because we have had for a long time lots of politicians who seem too scared to do and say things um, which the rules tell them they shouldn't do and say. Now, we know that that can lead us into trouble. And what you really want is a kind of maverick who isn't also a maniac. Um, and that's, that's really, in a sense, what the country needs right now. 
But in Theresa May, I think you have the strong man, and in these other peripheral figures, I think you have the rule breakers. That seems spot on, you know. And she yeah. was she was like that from the very beginning, if you remember. She was like that when she nothing stood... has changed. Mm, yeah. Well, <laughs> you just lost an election, or rather, you lost your majority. I, I mean, even well before that. I mean, when she called the election, she yeah. said it was because you know the House of Lords and the Labour Party are interfering with the Brexit result. Do you remember when she tried to deny Parliament any kind of vote on Article 50? There was a point where she went into the Lords to look at them as they voted the other way on something, mm-hmm. as in this sort of bullying, threatening way, when she thought that she was going to keep on losing after she catastrophically fucked up her election, when she thought she was going to keep on losing opposition day motions, she simply stopped challenging them. So again, all of those parliamentary yeah. conventions went away. And then finally, the last one was just that basic idea of shame, of there would be any shame in her behaviour. And she just didn't feel it. She kept yeah. on behaving that way. Only. The reason we don't see just how obviously sort of Erdogan-y she is is because she's so shit at it. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't feel that threatening because she's so just fundamentally inept at doing it. Yeah. But the actual messaging, the decisions that she takes are exactly in that kind of line of politics. To the extent that she still has support in the country, I reckon it's because of that. I reckon people say she just gets on with it. She doesn't care about all, the, all those doubters. You know, she just gets up in the morning and carries on. Mm-hmm. And there's something strong manny about that. There's someone who is impervious, who, to whom is always water off their back. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we deserve better. Fucking hell, we deserve better. And we don't even deserve much. it's interesting at the moment you've got uh, a situation in ukraine where uh in the presidential runoffs the person leading at the moment is a tv star uh, uh, who played a presidential uh, played a president himself and he decided to go into politics and run for president and it looks as if he might actually win and the way in which he has emerged uh out of left field out of nowhere seems to me an extraordinary example of how people can go into politics from now from the most from angles that you just wouldn't have expected and mm. the media allows them to do that and allows them to build up a support base yeah plus as you know if, if you do succeed and get a big majority in britain you can pretty much do whatever the fuck you want like i mean big majorities in britain hand you tremendous yeah. power we've kind of forgotten what this is like Elected it's been dictatorship so long yeah. what basically yeah i mean you know if, if you were to see a sudden sweep in for a governing party as someone who came over who's very very charismatic whatever else you you have a lot of leeway of the kind of changes you can make in this country but it is fascinating that we haven't had one person emerge like that. Hmm. I mean, really, in the last 20 or 30 years, who, probably the only true external influence was, has been Nigel Farage. And he's a politician of sorts himself, obviously. Hmm. But we haven't had a figure come into Parliament, bust up things and take a, 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 a leading position. I, I think we're overdue. Well, we don't have presidential elections. And of course, we have the party system, which makes that difficult, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah. So our guest this week, as you've just been hearing, is Jamie Suskind, author of Future Politics, barrister, former academic, all-round renaissance man, as far as I can tell. (laughs) (laughs) But do I understand he's only recently turned 30, is that right? I'm 29. That is fucking bullshit. Oh, my God. (laughs) I'm sorry. It's okay. You should, you should be sorry. The temperature in here has just dropped. <laughs> yeah, no one told me about this before I came. I really enjoyed future politics. I think especially because it Thank ranges you. so so widely. Because you've got philosophy, law, because you're a barrister, of course, politics, technology. It brings it all together. And basically, it's all about how we're going to make decisions collectively in the digital era and how we can make them. But from what we've seen with Brexit, it isn't really helping us make them very well at the moment. But on the face of it, we should make better decisions with more information. That was the dream of the uh, mid to late 90s Mm. internet evangelists. What's gone wrong? Well, what people assumed when the internet was born 
was that society would take the structure of the technology. They said that this is a this is a um, a networked webbed technology which distributes power to the margins, and therefore society is going to become more like a network, more decentralized. But actually, it's the opposite. Technologies take on the characteristics of the societies in which into which they're born, and the internet was born into an age of democratic capitalism, in which the institutions of the internet were always going to be controlled by big governments and by big companies. And what that means is that social media has developed according to commercial principles rather than political ones. We may see the internet as the forum, but in in many ways it's more like the market. And what that means is that the flow of information in society, rather than flowing freely and equally and uh, beneficially, it it flows on a commercial basis. So it goes to the places where the information that you and I receive is likely to be what we find titillating or scintillating or exciting. And it, rather than what's true or what's necessarily useful or helpful to us. And so if you control the flow of information in society according to try and according to the principle of trying to maximize clicks and maximize attention, rather the logic of the market, rather than the logic of the forum, some degree of shared facts, some degree of consensus, some degree of agreement on what the rules of engagement are when you discuss and debate issues with people, we shouldn't be surprised when we see a deterioration in the quality of political discourse. Mm-hmm. Yes, because the sheer abundance of information is part of the problem, isn't it? Because it forces us, in a way, to create our own filters in order to manage that information. Well, I mean, there's two points there. The 90s view was that we'd all form the sort of so-called daily me, where we would choose the information that we receive. And to a certain extent, that is true. But now, increasingly, the information that we receive is chosen for us based on data that is gathered about us. Uh, And therefore, what the service provider, whether it's a search engine or a news platform, thinks that we are most likely to click on and find interesting. And that's very different from the past. Can I ask a a question which is quite um, ignorant and naive and is probably going to make me look quite silly? I thought when um, for the web, when Berners-Lee sort of first mentioned this thing, that it was still even at that point, the links would be given priority according to how popular they are. Mm. Does that sort of mean then that there's there's like an element of subjectivity in the way that we address politics that's baked into the fundamental structure of, of the World Wide Web? I don't think that is baked into it, uh, e- even if what you say is right. And I'm not, I have to confess, I'm not even sure if it is. Okay. Uh, I, I may be wrong about that. Uh, Nina, do you? Yeah, no, my, no, my question to you was, given that, you know, the, the first principle is, you know, markets rather than the forum, mm. doesn't that mean we're too far gone now? Because do you see you know, any kind of uh, reform in order to make this more conducive to the kind of fundamentals you need for a strong democratic discourse. So are we past the point where liberal democracy can even flourish, given if you assume, and I'm like thinking about, you know, for example, what Shoshana Zuboff says as well, that Mm. it's actually the the market that controls all the fundamentals now in terms of the information that we see, how we're kind of subtly manipulated by that and affecting our political behavior as well. I mean, can I be pessimistic and then optimistic? Pessimistically, we need to stop just thinking about the social media of today and the information flows of today. Tomorrow, or rather in the future, we're going to see plugged into these networks artificial intelligence systems of colossal power and we're going to see a breakdown in the distinction between online and offline and real space and cyberspace and so uh, pessimistically these problems are likely to get worse the most powerful systems are going to be owned and controlled by the most powerful and rich bodies 
and they in turn will able to exercise be able to exercise a great deal of political control over the rest of us, whether that's through the traditional political organs like parliaments and legislatures, or whether it's more directly in changing the way we see the world, uh, in changing beha our behaviour, in scrutinising us and gathering data about us. So the answer, I think, Nina, is not necessarily that we're too far gone, but we, we better get our act together. And, uh, you know, I'm playing to the crowd here given this podcast, but Europe, the European Union, is way further ahead than most countries. We have the... It's not perfect, but we have the general data protection regulation. We have at least a system that is trying to enforce antitrust and competition laws. Uh, I think in many respects they're not fit for purpose, but they're some of the best ones we have. We need, over the course of, let's say, a decade, to try and take back control. <laughs> and this wouldn't be the we'll first... We'll be too busy negotiating Brexit. <laughs> well, of course, it, it's, one yeah. of the, it's one of the great tragedies, yeah. isn't it? That we, that, we, that we are blinded to the problems that are just coming over the horizon, whether it's climate change or whether it's technology by these immediate issues relating to Brexit. Um, yeah. But my own view is that unless, unless we, we begin the intellectual and political revolution now, it will be too late. Do you see the geopolitical order being upended whereby you know, countries like China, which are more techno-utilitarian, not mm. going towards democracy as was so often you know, prescribed, um, just becoming these almost AI superpowers where it, you know, the, game, the game is almost up if we don't get our act together in the next five to ten years. And given the kind of internal, uh, fractured internal politics you see both in the United mm. States and Europe, you could almost argue that it's too late to compete with like the rise of a techno-utilitarian or author authoritarian state, which will take power uh, on a geopolitical level that just hasn't been seen before. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a new question, but it's also an old one. I mean, in the last century, people often said, what, what chance does our liberal democracy stand where we all just sit around wringing our hands and debating against a country which is truly united with only one political party, with a leader who makes decisions and enforces them uh, himself? There are two countervailing factors here. I, I think we risk the full China, the supercharged state, where the awesome powers of technology, perhaps through well-meaning regulation, find their ways into the hands of the already powerful uh, who govern us. And in that sense, I'm not one of those people who thinks that tech will upend the nation-state system. I think you could entrench it because I think that governments will want to get their hands on technology. They want to co-opt it. Um, so, for instance, the United States is not unco it's unconstitutional for the for the government to conduct mass surveillance, but it's not unconstitutional for it to buy data about individuals that have been gathered by tech companies. And so they sort of work hand in hand in that respect. Um, so I, there is always going to be that tension between, on the one hand, trying not to empower the state too much. But on the other hand, recognizing that the strong state supercharged by AI and technology is going to be very, very difficult to compete with. And that is, you know, in many ways, the great challenge for the liberal order in the next 50 years. And one of the things that you make clear in the book is how tempting that can actually be to the individual. Because one of the situations you explore is the idea of voters delegating their political decisions to artificial intelligence. So an algorithm would work out your stance based on your beliefs and it would vote in kind of mini referenda like the ones that we see in California at the moment, propositions. Um, and it sounds a pretty frightening idea. D but does it actually reflect the fact that a lot of people don't want to spend much time thinking about politics, you know, particularly when it involves thinking about things like customs union? This is what I mean when I suggest that it might be a tempting way for the individual to go, and that might become very dangerous. I think over the next few years you're going to see calls 
from populist movements which say that actually the only truly democratic decisions are those which are taken by the people directly. And in the next five or ten years, it's far from inconceivable that it would be technologically possible for each of us to swipe left or swipe right five or ten times a day on a given policy at a local or a national level, or to let a delegated artificial intelligence system do it on our behalf, or to delegate our vote as in liquid democracy to someone else. So to say, don't trouble me with votes about the NHS, this consortium of doctors and nurses is going to do it on my behalf. And the question of direct democracy as against representative democracy is one that we haven't really had to have for the last few thousand years because it's always been accepted that in a massive country, in a big polity, you can't assemble the people the whole time in order to take decisions. But I don't think that's going to be technologically true anymore. And I think that's going to be a decision or rather a philosophical issue that we have to be prepared to engage with. And there is a kind of crude populism on both the left and the right which says that more democracy is always best in every circumstance. But of course, in some, you know, we know that's not necessarily the case in lots of decisions. You know, I wouldn't want to de- the majority of the population to decide whether I had cancer or not. I'd rather an expert doctor did that for me. Um, but, and the last 200 years of liberal democracy have actually all been about where we fetter the law uh, as created by the demos. So in ancient Greece, if the, the majority voted for you to die, you would be executed. But today, if the majority vote for you to die, the rule of law prevents that from happening. And the rule of law and human rights are institutions which limit the amount of democracy we have. And so we're going to have to restrike the balance in this century, uh, or rather ex- engage with arguments about restriking the balance, because technology is going to completely change the political possibilities of human self-governance. You're pretty keen on the idea of a universal basic income in the book. Um, why do you think it will help? I'm only keen on it in a world of technological unemployment. So I think if, uh, if structurally 20, 30, 40% of the country can never find work because uh, that work can be done more efficiently by machines, it would make sense to tax the capital, to tax the productive technologies and redistribute that money around the country. I don't support a universal basic income in an economy like ours. I don't see why rich people should receive a check in the post every month, which could be better put towards people who truly need it. Uh, it seems to me to be an inefficient system. And I think it's really important when you think about a UBI to distinguish between the left vision and the right vision. The left envision what we already have, um, quite a large state, plus everyone gets a nice check in the post every every month. Whereas what the right mean, the Silicon Valley UBI view is is actually that you stop funding the hospitals, the schools Mm -hmm. and instead you have this libertarian vision where money is redistributed it's given to you in your pocket and you say you spend it on what you like if you want to purchase health insurance, fine but if you're healthy and you want to take the risk that you don't so UBI, the reason it's achieved a kind of superficial popularity I think is because it, much like Brexit, it means different things to different people Mm -hmm. I really am only interested in it as a means of solving a situation where we have long-term structural unemployment caused by technology. Then you get into the realm of something like Bill Gates' robot tax, which might help to prevent a massive concentration of wealth. And the, and the amazing thing about these issues is that they're really not that far away. Is it like 60% or 40% of the jobs in the US will be automated within the next two or three decades? And this, again, to me, is the great tragedy of Brexit. You know, we're sitting here talking about 
World War II and whose grandfather fought on which beaches on in Normandy. Um, and in our lifetime, we're, I mean, technology itself is neutral, but the application of that technology has the ability to upend our society and politics, and it will in such a way that we haven't, we can't even foresee, and we're not prepared at all for these challenges. Um, and my fear, of course, is if you consider that one of the basic tenets of democracy is that there's some kind of level playing field, if you consider that there could be mass unemployment because of the development of AI, we need to start preparing for that now. And this is why I think that Jamie's point um, to UBI is really interesting. And these, these are the type of things we should be talking about in our politics right now. But I agree. Um, we're not. And there's an interesting question about what leaving the EU does for these yeah. questions. I mean, it, speaking broadly, there are very few issues related to the challenges posed by technology, which will be easier tackled on our own. Um, and But that's because if we regulate more heavily in one area than the EU, then it incentivizes businesses to move to the EU. Uh, and if we regulate less heavily, then we're protecting ourselves less, uh, albeit that we might have an inflow of capital. Now, the U people in the U.S. point to Europe and they say the reason you don't have a Facebook or a Google or a Twitter is because of your excessive data protection laws. Mm. But that, in a sense, is a choice that we've made uh, as a European continent. And to my mind, that is the right way to go, because the political challenges posed by new technologies are so great that cashing in, uh, cashing in our liberties and cashing in the health of our democracy is just not worth it. Yeah. The end of the show is upon us, like Marc Francois in a pie shop, which means the Brexit time capsule. Jamie Siskin. Four times. You've mocked him so far. <laughs> the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> You're our guest. What's going in our secret cache of things we'll miss when or if we leave the EU? What we'll miss is the ability to regulate at a continent-wide level the technologies that are completely transforming the way that we live together, knowing that what we do our French and German neighbours and everyone across the continent will be doing exactly the same. And so there's uniformity of treatment. This week's foreign language clip is in Italian and it's from listener Eliza Casinelli. La Gran Bretagna nell'Unione Europea è una gioia per così tante persone perché bisogna cambiarlo. In italiano si dice non facciamoci la testa prima di romperla. That means... Britain in the European Union is a joy for so many people, so why would it need to be changed? In Italian, there is a saying that we use, don't bandage your head before you break it. Better known as, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Don't forget to send us your foreign language clips to info at romaniacs.com. Keep them concise and relatively non-libelous. <laughs> and that's the end of the show. Thanks to our special guest, guest Jamie Suskind. Is there space for podcasts in the brave new automatic word world, Jamie? <laughs> in due course podcasts themselves will be automated oh, <laughs> not possible surely <laughs> old deep fakes yeah. there'll be a podcast a machine learning system that listens to every Romaniacs episode and then just automates your voice knowing exactly what you'd say in every situation I would actually love to hear that I would, I would love to hear the automated version of us it'd be great Marc Francois would appear a lot I think <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming in, and thanks to Nina and Ian. Ian, presumably you're off to find out if Theresa May has been defenestrated yet. No, not really. I thought I had the rest of the day off, really, because I'm not going to come out with an announcement until late, so I just figured I'd sit around doing fuck all and then, you know, deal with the fates as they arrive to us. That's a very good idea. Enjoy. <laughs> Nina, what are you up to next? I think I'm going to have a very nice, relaxed afternoon and then wait 
for the EU to say this evening what they said they're going to be saying for the past few weeks. Do you have a prediction for what time? The the, the Roda is what time? What do you reckon for time? Oh, this 11, yeah. You know, they like to drag it out late. Mm. Three-course meal, gravy train. (laughs) Theresa May has to make an appeal to all the leaders, so... That's going to be really awkward. Um, <laughs> and yeah. almost yeah. certainly counterproductive. Yes, excruciating. <laughs> uh, we'll see you all next week, or maybe sooner, for more fully automated luxury chaos. But first, here's our national anthem, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a salute to some more of our beloved Patreon backers. Hallo, und wir danken euch alle. Kirsten Foster, David McCarthy, Justin Bartley, Tom Birch, Easy Target to Hit, good name, Jonathan Pilbara, Kim Furlong, Lucy Proctor, Brody McAdam, and Andrew Doran. Uh, and it's thanks from me to uh, Joseph Sherlock, Chris Coleman, Matthew Veal, Simon Byron, uh, Dirk Mags, Martin Crowley, John Donlan, Ed Edmonston, Paul Oldham, and Cindy Lee. And finally, hello and thank you from me to Rory John Thompson, Roberta Garina. Hi, Roberta. Sarah Chung Johnson, Lucas, Samantha Robertson, Jeremy Conrad Pickles, Daryl Henderson, David Worthington, Mark Kochvara, and Jim Moray. See you next week. Romaniacs was presented by Roz Taylor with Nina Schick and Ian Dunt. Audio production was by me, Sophie Black, and the producer is Andrew Harrison. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production.